Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted December 23, 2016, we talk with Jimena Sanchez Garzoli, Latin America expert and advocate at the Independent Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA, about the role of Afro descendants and the indigenous in Colombia's long negotiated, then rejected, finally revised, and approved peace pact with its largest rebel army. We'll also point out top features in the new WPJ winter issue, cover theme Interrupted, with a special perspective. It was written and guest edited entirely by female foreign affairs experts. But first, some top news of the past week. President-elect Donald Trump sent shockwaves around the world again with a tweet that said the U.S. must, quote, strengthen and expand its nuclear forces until such time as the world comes to its senses regarding nukes. It followed quickly on a vow by President Vladimir Putin to strengthen Russia's nuclear missiles to, quote, reliably penetrate any existing or prospective missile defense systems, possibly prompted by recent U.S. legislation authorizing research, development, test, and evaluation of costly and questionable space-based missile defense systems that was signed by President Obama the very next day. Trump aides suggested that his tweet was meant to forestall nuclear escalation. But then Trump himself called a cable news show to say, quote, let it be an arms race. We will outmatch them at every pass and outlast them all. President Obama also produced shockwaves at home and abroad by defying pressure from Trump, many other Republicans and Democrats, and deciding the U.S. would not block a U.N. resolution condemning continued Israeli settlement construction that threatens any potential two-state solution of the Palestinian problem. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. Porque ayer el Senado y hoy la Cámara están respaldando esta política del gobierno de paz, le dan más solidez y sobre todo con esta urgencia que tenemos de pasar a la implementación, de que las FARC se muevan hacia las zonas y comencemos a cumplir, pues es un, un respaldo muy importante que agradecemos mucho. Colombia's High Commissioner for Peace, Sergio Jaramillo, expressed great gratitude for the urgency with which his country's Senate and Congress approved a revised version of the historic peace deal with its largest rebel group, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or FARC, at the end of November after surprising rejection of the original plan in a closely divided national referendum. President Juan Manuel Santos' decision to bypass the public this time did not totally squelch lingering opposition led by former President Alvaro Uribe Velez, and there was a walkout of congressional opponents before the final votes. Fierce fighting with other rebel, militia, and narco groups also continues, but the legislative support took Colombia a long step closer to formally and physically ending the violence that has claimed more than 220,000 lives over more than half a century. The special concerns of Colombia's African descendants and indigenous people and their determination to participate in the peace process was highlighted in a world policy blog post by Jimena Sanchez Garzoli, a senior associate at the independent nonprofit Washington office on Latin America, WOLA. Her piece is headlined, Afro-Descendants and Indigenous Defend Historic Peace Agreement. And we discussed it recently for this podcast. Jimena Sanchez-Garzoli, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you. 
when the peace process began, Afro-descendants, the indigenous, other ethnic minorities who make up a majority of the Long War's victims were not even included as separate and unique stakeholders. How did they respond and with what success? Well, um, they responded rather shocked and surprised, given that they make up more than 30% of the victims of the conflict, and they're disproportionately affected by displacement. And their areas are basically the areas where the most active conflict was still taking place. So they decided that they didn't want to let this historical opportunity pass them by, and they organized themselves, especially the territorial authorities, because in Colombia, Afro-Colombian indigenous people have collective land titles and uh, started a national and international global campaign so that they could be heard. After two years of a really intensive effort that even included the U.S. Congress, Obama administration, and protests within Colombia, they were able to um, have a dialogue with the parties to the conflict in Havana with the FARC and with the Colombian government. And through that dialogue um, and continued pressure, they eventually were able to have uh, something called the ethnic chapter incorporated into the final agreement. Now, the ethnic chapter, basically what it does is is uh, forces that the multiple parts of the agreement all have to um, have a uh, consultation with a high-level commission that includes representatives of Afro and indigenous people so that the specific issues that affect the collective land rights of these populations need to be addressed when the accord is being implemented in their areas. For all that, the vote, the referendum narrowly rejecting the original peace plan uh, showed a, a sharp difference between the outcome in ethnic areas actually ravaged by the war and those where it was seen mostly on TV. Talk about that. Well, ironically, one of the worst massacres committed by the FARC guerrillas was the 2002 Bohaya massacre where about 100 Afro-Colombians who were caught in the middle of fighting between the FARC and the paramilitary groups sought refuge in a church. And during that fighting, which went on for several hours, the FARC launched a um, homemade bomb that ended up incinerating more than 88 people and displacing that entire town. Um, that Those people, those people from Bohaya in the Pacific region of Choco, were actually the biggest proponents of the peace process. I think that the referendum showed a huge divide between the urban, middle, and upper-class Colombians that are not affected daily by the conflict, and most of Colombia, which is the rural Colombia, which is also poor, um, Afro, indigenous, and campesino, that deal with the conflict on a daily basis. Almost all of the Afro-Colombian and indigenous areas voted in favor of the peace because they see peace as the way forward to begin to address a lot of the structural issues that have led to conflict and that lead to repeated conflicts and inequalities and that generate obstacles for them in order to have just basic services like um, sanitation, potable water, access to education. While the 
middle and upper income Colombians in most of the rest of Colombia saw the peace as a threat to their economic interests, or they basically were voting out of um, revenge. Uh, they basically saw the FARC as uh, the group that has been the most problematic in the country, generated a lot of violations, all of that which is true, um, but they thought that this peace agreement was actually going to give them benefits. So um, people basically voted on self-interest. There was also some manipulation of information. Um, part of the no campaign went around basically assessing what people feared the most in those urban areas and uh, provided false information about what would happen with the accord according to um, what those people's fears were. For example, some of the evangelical churches, which are not the general Protestant churches but are more uh, one or two uh, pastors-led churches, um, were very much fearing that because the accord included uh, what is known as a gender focus, in other words, just upholding women's rights throughout the entire accord and making sure that women are, as victims and so forth, um, represented in the types of remedies that the accord will um, provide, um, were very much uh, told um, wrongly that this gender focus was going to turn all of their children into homosexuals um, and that it was going to lead to getting rid of the traditional roles of women and that it was somehow um, an idea imposed by feminists uh, from another country and from the United Nations. So um, what we saw basically was a perfect storm of the differences between the different Colombias that exist uh, people's personal interests, manipulation, and lastly, a high level of abstentia, mostly due to the fact that on the part of those who uh, were in favor of the accord, they just believed it was a done deal. Um, the week before, there had been a highly tele televised, very um, formal ceremony in Cartagena with all of these world leaders and the head of the United Nations and so forth signing the accord. So they thought, well, it's a done deal. And then others that weren't able to vote because you had a hurricane, Hurricane Matthew, basically plummeting most of the Caribbean coast, and the registrar's office refused to extend the hours for which people uh, were able to get to the polls. Former President Uribe seemed to acknowledge a certain racial hostility when asked about the plan's ethnic chapter, which, as you say, designed, was designed to guarantee the rights of Afro-Colombians and the indigenous women. What did he say, and how did those groups respond? Well, uh, President Alvaro has always been uh, very antagonistic towards mostly indigenous groups as well as Afro-Colombian groups because um, he has had a lot of investment interests um, in areas where these groups live. and. Those areas basically have been colonized by the types of company that Mr. Uribe has promoted. Um, basically, people gone in and taken over the natural resources in those areas without consulting people, and most of it done very violently with the use of uh, right-wing paramilitaries, so displacement, massacres, and what have you. Um, so there's always been a very contentious relationship between uh, the Uribe and his um, 
groups and these groups. However, after the accord was signed, um, he was on television and he was asked, what did he think of the ethnic chapter? And basically his response was, well, you know, um, basically we don't need that because we're not an African country, which was a very racist and demeaning and, and paternalistic and, and terrible thing to say, which really incensed the Afro-Colombian and indigenous communities. Um, but it wasn't uh, necessarily a reflection that is too out of the way of many Colombians. There's still very much structural racism in Colombia. There's the belief that um, indigenous and Afro-Colombian people People, um, in some cases, aren't able to make uh, decisions on their own, that somehow uh, there are lesser people, and, and, and there's quite a bit of discrimination. So while um, it sounds rather horrible in the U.S. context, within the Colombia context, such rhetoric is not um, completely uncommon. But the indigenous people basically organized protests throughout the country uh, post-referendum, um, expressing their utmost support for the peace process, and they became, in many ways, the moral authority of the peace process um, that led youth, students, um, and many other Colombians and victims to go out into the streets and defend the accord. Current President Santos also signals special concern for ethnic Colombians in his announcement about the dispersal of his 2016 Nobel Peace Prize funds. Yes, and that is something that we think is very wonderful. Um, that community that I just mentioned to you, the Bolhaya community of Afro-Colombians that um, suffered that horrible tragedy in um, Choco in the church, um, is basically the community where he plans to spend some of those funds. And I think that's been actually a really wonderful thing, um, not just because he's giving the funds, but because if you spoke to um, the Santos administration four years ago, before this process started, they probably would have had no clue about the real suffering of Afro-Colombians, the real obstacles and difficulties um, that these communities have gone through. And through this process where Afro-Colombian and indigenous have basically imposed themselves, it's opened up a door to dialogue and exchange between um, part of the Colombian economic, political, and military elite and these groups, and it's led to empathy and understanding, and if anything, it's led to quite a bit of uh, further uh, respect for each other and also working together post the signing of the accord on August 24th, the High Commissioner for Peace uh, joined Afro-Colombian and indigenous groups in doing um, outreach on the peace accord. He went to many of their areas in uh, the Pacific Coast and elsewhere and met with hundreds of Afro-Colombian and indigenous people. This is something that is really unprecedented um, and shows that, you know, if people get to know each other, if people can relate to each other as human beings um, and start to know um, more about what the reality is for each other, that you can really break down a lot of these perceptions and walls and prejudices that have um, been in place for many, many centuries in, in the country.
What revisions in the peace plan to assuage the no-vote majority are most important or most worrying to the ethnic people? Well, um, luckily, the ethnic chapter was not touched. So, in other words, the safeguards that basically state that um, any of the agrarian reforms or the land funds, the illicit crop substitution projects, uh, the truth um, and reconciliation aspects of the accord and political participation need to be consulted with them and take into account the specifics of ethnic minorities. None of that changed. What changed mostly in the accord were uh, stricter measures towards the FARC guerrillas. So, in other words, um, one of the biggest complaints or that Uribe was playing up was the fact that there was going to be all of these wonderful benefits given to these groups that acted uh, through terrorism and who basically held the, hate, the state hostage for many years with this conflict. And so, for example, the amount of funding that they get to be able to have public channels, the number of seats that they will have in terms of political representation are less. Also, um, there will be um, efforts to clarify um, exactly what the restrictions are in the areas that they're going to be demobilizing um, and um, basically making it harsher. However, it doesn't fundamentally change the fact that the FARC was unwilling to accept jail time. Um, they basically one of their red lines was, we are not going to demobilize to then just go to jail. We want to be able to become a political force. And so that, in essence, has not changed. What has changed is mostly just stricter um, guidelines and also uh, clarification of what is meant by the gender focus and protection of um, minority religious groups. Given the walkout by critics in the legislature and no second referendum, do you think the approved plan will have the court uh, that it and Santos need to actually move forward? I think that uh, the majority of Colombia, especially in all of the rural areas, um, are completely in favor of the peace accord and that there is support there. I think the areas where we might run into conflict are going to be with some of the economic and political elites um, that feel, again, that for the first time they may be subject to scrutiny because of the violations that they've committed. Um, they may be subject to explaining, you know, how they got the land that they got in certain areas where they're doing a lot of their productive projects. Um, and I think, yeah, there's going to be opposition um, from those folks. Already, President Alvaro Uribe Velas is here today in Washington, D.C., um, supposedly to talk about how terrible it is that this accord is moving forward. Um, and he often comes to Washington, D.C. to talk to the U.S. Congress um, and to basically try to convince them to use uh, U.S. legislation against um, supporting Santos's efforts. What is supposed to happen next, and what signs of success uh, will you be looking for? Well, this is a really unprecedented situation. I mean, really never in the world have you had a situation where um, 
folks in a country are opposed to a peace process. Generally speaking, in the world, uh, po- folks are in favor of a peace process. They see the benefits. So right now, what has happened is that, as you stated earlier, the accord has been passed by the legislature. And um, the question has become, given that um, the fast-track mechanism, which was basically put in place uh, so that the set of legislation required for the um, peace process to be implemented, which includes, for example, an amnesty law for um, the FARC demobilizing guerrillas so they don't get arrested, and a whole host of things similar to that, um, needs to be um, decided upon by the Constitutional Court. Originally, um, the uh, agreement was that there was going to be a plebiscite, and with the plebiscite, um, if the plebiscite passed, that fast track legislation would kick in right away. Now that we didn't have a plebiscite, that it was approved by the legislature, it is unclear how that's going to happen. So if the Constitutional Court, which we're hoping um, makes a decision early next week on this, uh, says yes, um, you can use the fast-track mechanism, the whole um, package of laws required to put all of this in place will kick in, and the FARC guerrillas will start their demobilization process, which is known as D-Day, and in 180 days they will follow that whole timeline, um, and that will be verified by the UN mission that's in the country. If the Constitutional Court says no, that is not the way that um, you can do this, you have to do it through the ordinary legislature, we're really going to see another era of um, bit of limbo and uncertainty in the country because it means that every single set of legislation will have to go through the ordinary process, and that can take a very long time. It also means that um, representatives in um, the Congress in Colombia can debate the different points of the accords, which could potentially lead to changes in the accords, and it could be something that can take months. That is actually a uh, situation that could lead to a lot of uncertainty for the guerrillas. Right now, they have concentrated themselves in pre-concentration zones um, and, you know, are awaiting uh, basically the okay to go ahead and concentrate and demobilize. Um, Given that this is in limbo, um, they received from the high commander last week a note saying, hold on. Let's wait and see what happens. And so there's a lot of concern that as time goes by and this doesn't move forward, you have a higher risk of first these groups needing to eat and figuring out a way to take care of themselves so that they may um, embark in their extortion and other activities, or two, that they'll be highly vulnerable to being arrested or to being um, attacked by um, illegal paramilitary groups. What role uh, in this period will the organized Afro-Colombians and indigenous play? Well, the Ethnic Commission, which is basically a joint platform of all of the territorial authorities of the ethnic groups and all of the major groupings throughout the country, are very actively trying to push all of this forward. Uh, Basically, they have written to the Constitutional Court and said, please, 
you know, move forward and make this decision as soon as possible. So have thousands of other victims because they all see that this is basically what needs to happen for things to move forward. Uh, Secondly, they've started educating their communities about what the different parts of the accord entail and how they're going to organize and figure out reconciliation mechanisms. In a lot of these areas, you're going to have um, guerrilla fighters returning to um, people who are very hostile towards them because the guerrillas, um, the FARC guerrillas, always had a philosophy that the issue of oppression was an issue of class, basically a Marxist-Leninist idea, and that the issue of cultural identity or racism basically was not important. Now, that has changed a little bit because of the dialogues between the groups and the FARC, but there's still been a long history of mistreatment of the FARC guerrillas of indigenous and Afro-Colombian people and a forced recruitment of their youngsters. So they are starting to prepare their communities for what it's going to mean to receive these folks that are victimizers back into their communities um, and what it's going to mean to have to address the FARC in their areas as a political party versus an imposing military force. Talk about the delay in peace talks with Colombia's second largest rebel group, the ELN. Well, the ELN historically has always been considered more difficult in terms of dialogue with the peace. Um, And basically we had very high hopes that they had come up with an agenda with the government um, this fall and that they were going to start talks right away. However, that has been put on hold. And it's been put on hold because on the part of the government of Colombia, they feel that um, one of the precursors to the talks was that they needed to release um, folks that they had under their custody, in particular a former congressman uh, from the Choco who is being held by them um, and others. And on the part of the ELN guerrillas, they're saying that they're not going to release those people until the government releases their ELN fighters that um, are whom they consider to be political prisoners. So we are basically on hold with all of that. A difference between that process and the FARC process is that the ELN really wants this to be much more of an open process that includes civil society from the get-go. The FARC process, um, I think, and it was part of its success, was a very closed process with a very tight and narrow agenda done in Cuba. In this case, we're going to see something that's going to be very uh, different and perhaps more open. Um, But at the same time, you know, the ELN's time is numbered. I mean, if they don't um, come up with an agreement, all of the military force is going to go against them. And they're a much smaller group uh, than the FARC. And so, really, I think that they have no choice and they're going to have to move forward. But is it going to be easy? No. There's going to be a lot more debate um, and probably a lot more back and forth and stops and starts than um, what you saw with the FARC process. And what about the continued fighting with a third guerrilla group, the EPL, and right-wing paramilitaries reportedly for control of uh, narco-traffic? 
Well, um, let's start with the EPL. I recently, in July, was in the area of Catatumbo, which is the area bordering the Venezuelan border, which is basically the EPL's stronghold. And I was basically shocked to find out that the EPL has actually increased um, their ranks quite a bit. Um, one thought that the EPL was no longer really active because its leader um, had uh, basically been killed, but it appears that that's not been the case, that they've been regrowing. It is not known exactly how many fighters they have, and I don't think the numbers are very big. However, they are deeply involved in narco-trafficking. Their focus has mostly been um, taxing the coca trade in those areas and helping to produce the cocaine and trafficking it, trafficking it through Venezuela. So, um, you know, what we know is that um, it has less of a political focus and less of a we want to take over the government and have control focus as much as it is a uh, more regionalized um, armed group with um, other intentions. But um, I don't think they're going to pose a major, major, major threat. However, it is something that will have to be dealt with. FARC and the ELN demobilized, all of the attention will be on them. Any chance Sorry. the FARC could improve its situation by joining the fight against those other groups? Would they even be trusted if they wanted to be deputized like that? Well, interesting history of guerrilla groups in Colombia is that they don't tend to work together. There have been moments where the ELN and the FARC have been their biggest enemies and have, you know, killed each other. So um, the, the ideological part of it doesn't always um, guarantee <laughs> collaboration. However, there will be a percentage of the middle-level commanders or uh, rank-and-file who will find that having a life in criminal activity is better than demobilizing um, and trying to integrate fully into society. And so I think that there will be a certain number of former FARC members that may join the EPL or they may even join the other illegal groups, the illegal paramilitary groups also involved in the, in the drug trade. Uh, I think more out of an economic um, necessity or motive than really anything ideological. Any chance that the FARC or some of its members could actually join the army and their fight against these other groups? I see that to be really highly unlikely. <laughs> um, yeah. But in Colombia, you never know what could happen. <laughs> what do you see as the proper and most effective role in all this for the international community and especially the United States? Well, the United States has actually played a positive, constructive role in this peace process, which is something rather shocking given that the United States was the number one military donor to Colombia um, since the year 2000. And basically, um, the United States has always um, seen Colombia more in terms of a anti-narcotics situation and their ally in anti-narcotics and the FARC guerrillas as um, insurgencies. And um, then during the Bush years, this really turned into uh, the framework of anti-terrorism and the various groups there of all in the 
U.S. terrorism list. So it's kind of shocking that um, the United States has taken that role. However, it hasn't been at the table. It's played a very constructive role in that it's allowed the guarantor countries and the countries supporting negotiations to be the ones really getting the two sides to talk and decide what they want to do um, and not interfering in that, waiting basically for Colombia and its government to tell them what they needed. Um, and then the special envoy, Bernie Aronson, that was um, appointed by uh, President Obama, has played a really good role in pushing the process forward in moments of crisis. So the United States, I think, will remain engaged in Colombia. It's always been a bipartisan policy. Um, there's an aid package um, that is going through the Congress now. I think it will probably end up being decided upon early next year because the Republicans want to go with a continuing resolution. However, that aid package is going to include multiple things which will be very important to consolidating the peace in Colombia. Part of it is landmine removal efforts. Colombia is one of the countries with the most landmines in the world, which is a huge problem for returns and, and, and agriculture and all sorts of things. Um, secondly, there's going to be an economic package that includes um, a good amount of money for strengthening Afro-Colombian and indigenous communities and their basically inclusion in a post-conflict Colombia, as well as um, quite a bit of money to strengthen the justice sector, which is something that the U.S. has done for a very long time, but given the conflict still taking place, hasn't been able to take root the way that it would need to in a post-conflict scenario. So the U.S. should continue in that vein. Um, the concern that um, we have as Colombia monitors is the fact that we fear that the rest of the world is going to basically say, okay, Colombia's um, signed this peace deal, it's done, it's a done deal, let's put our efforts into many of the other crises around the world uh, that really need that. We're concerned about that because doing that in terms of funding would be a major mistake. Um, after the Guatemala and El Salvador wars in Central America, we saw first a surge of funding for a couple years and then a complete drop in assistance. And as a result of that, many of the changes that needed to take place to address the root causes of these conflicts from preventing them from happening again were not attended to. And you have the terrible situation you have today of um, impunity, of unresolved issues, of um, illegal groups uh, sprouting up because people don't have the opportunities um, that uh, the pieces uh, were supposed to provide them. And so we think that the number one thing that the international community can do is help solidify the peace, and that's going to take five to ten years. Jimenez Sanchez Garzoli, thank you. Thank you. Jimenez Sanchez Garzoli is the leading Colombia human rights advocate at the independent nonprofit Washington office on Latin America, WOLA, an expert on internally displaced persons, refugees, and human rights. Ms. Sanchez has shed light on the situation of Colombia's more than 5 million internally displaced persons and helped expose the links between Colombia's government and drug-funded paramilitaries. Her recent post for the World Policy website blog is headlined, Afro-Descendants and Indigenous Defend Historic Peace Agreement. After we talked, FARC leaders expelled five commanders for refusing to demobilize and join the peace process. 
At the Vatican, Pope Francis presented President Santos with a medal for his efforts, but could not coax former President Uribe on board at that point. Featured in the new WPJ winter issue, Interrupted, written and edited entirely by female foreign affairs experts, you'll find articles on the fight for gender parity in Kenya and Somalia, on the future of feminism in China, and on the bias and bad manners that algorithms behind artificial intelligence can pick up from the real world. And listen next week when our podcast will consider the plight and protests of Israel's Ethiopian Jews, male and female, nearly a quarter century after being taken in by their spiritual homeland. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. Happy Holidays! <laughs>